Welcome to Let's Talk Robotics. Today, my guest is Dr. Michael Lucas, who is an innovator, designer, charter professional engineer. Michael, welcome and thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Nikki, for the invitation to talk robotics with you. I suspect that tagline on your LinkedIn is just the tip of the iceberg with you. It is. It was the easiest way of describing that I do all sorts of crazy things uh, for all sorts of people. So. So to my audience, um, just a fair warning, if you've uh, joined us on this episode, get yourself a cup of coffee, sit down, relax. Um, if coffee is not your drink of choice, whatever you need, because you're in for a ride today. Um, this episode may end up being one of two, so we'll see how we go, because there's certainly a lot to cover. Michael, so you've had an extraordinary career doing amazing things. Can you start from when you were a student studying mechanical engineering, where, amongst other things, you started the first solar vehicle racing team? Yeah, so I I had always had a a real fascination with designing and making things that moved. Um, And it's led to a pretty interesting career so far. I I guess it started in high school where I did what... um, these days would be called STEAM. I did the maths, the physics, chemistry, but also art, drama, and graphics. And it was really unconventional to do all of those artistic and science subjects together. And people tried to talk me out of it. I really think it encourages a more holistic thinking about a problem. And it's great to see that that's what they do these days. So I enrolled in engineering at the University of Queensland, in part because they had the biggest Lego collection of any Brisbane university, um, but also because it was a good opportunity to learn more about designing things that, that moved. I was... Um, really fortunate i i won a scholarship from a mining company to uh to go through university um not only did they pay my university fees but they also organized some really good experience working with their engineers so i spent my summer holidays working out in the middle of nowhere uh, gaining some good real world experience um one of the friends i'd met while we were working uh in uh, in weeper in far north queensland had gone on exchange with the uh, a university in California. And when she came back, um, she told stories of their solar racing car team. So I said, well, why don't we start one here? Um, so between us, we started a, a solar racing team called Sunshark. And we figured that if we could get a solar car to to do uh, really well, that it might lead to some more sustainable regular cars being being more possible. Um, and and it went really well. Um, I, had, I kept with them for a couple of years um, after I graduated, but uh, really had very little to do with them after the late 1990s. But I'm so proud that 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 team evolved over nearly 15 years and did so well across World Solar Challenge races in in Australia and internationally. Um, But I'm really more proud that something I helped start gave engineering students a really practical way to use their engineering theory and that so many of those people who, those students who went on uh, on that team, went on to start up uh, really successful companies in the solar industry and even in electric vehicle charging and, and other things. So that was that was really cool to, to have been able to start something during my university time that, that helped so many other people go on to do really cool and awesome stuff. Well, you, you've gone on to do it wherever you've been. You've added extra value, and we'll, we'll get to that. I just want to go back to your um, your stream and your comments about the arts, arts um factor that you brought in there that's actually very important and um, I think I think a lot of people fail to realize how important it is even if you've got a STEM career. It is it's it's one of the things that a lot of the the regular sciences and maths just teach you a whole bunch of theory the thing that a lot of the the art subjects teach you to do is some some critical and creative thinking about about the world and, and how things work and if you can pull the two together it's a I think it's a really powerful way of solving uh, solving problems and it's something that I think Australia's education system needs to needs to think more about getting STEAM rather than STEM. Yeah look I, I think our education system um, should anyway and I don't just speak in Australia I think they should have a general overall because the way typically education is um, presented today, I think it bores students, especially very bright students. Um, they get disruptive in class because they're just bored. Um, and there's so many um, avenues where you can get your education today and you can fast track these kids that are exceptionally bright. Absolutely. And it's 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 something that 
I, I remember my school days, if I hadn't been doing those art subjects, I'd, I'd, I think I'd have ended up drawing pictures in the, uh, in the chemistry class. Um, but it, it's, it's one of those things that I think it, is it, it's such a powerful way of, of expanding the way that, that people think generally about solving problems, whether that's technical problems or just other life problems. Yeah. So for any teachers out there listening, um, part of my suggestions, Michael, you'll find I've got a lot of suggestions. I don't know if anyone actually listens to them, but I think teachers, before they actually go and teach, they have to go out into the real world, what I call not a, a closet environment. My, my sister was a teacher in South Africa for 38 years, so I'm well versed what these little um, insular little hubs are because it's fabulous, but you know the, the teachers don't actually go out. They don't actually see how companies work and I think it could um, you know instead of going for teaching prep they should go into an accountancy firm or they should go to an engineering company and they should spend a month there going okay we've got experience like I'm not expecting them to be engineers but at least they've got some idea of what the company's about and, and just exposing people to exposing teachers to that then helps expose the, their students to those concepts and ideas as well which is something they'd otherwise never have come across Exactly. And I think at the very least, career advice guidance teachers, they should be forced to do it. They don't have an option. Other teachers teaching maths and science, okay, fine, you know, you maybe have an option, but career advice, definitely. So I hope I'm not saying that, um, telling, giving them advice and they're already doing it, in which case I'm going to get some <laughs> backlash today. <laughs> so you had a particular interest in animatronic creatures for the film industry, which led you to do a PhD. Tell us about this journey. So as we've just been talking about, I, I have a really creative streak, but I originally decided to study engineering because I like designing things that move, but a, and a really particular inspiration for that was Jim Henson's Creature Workshop and the team from Industrial Light and Magic. I really loved how they combined art and engineering to make awesome creatures come to life. And it was something I just, I just wanted to get into. And, and the detail that they required to get lifelike motion was, was just something that inspired me to make creatures that could interact all by themselves. Um, unfortunately, though, my mining company scholarship had kind of involved in after graduation into working in the mining industry, and it really wasn't that exciting. Um, so on a trip to the US, I got in touch with several of the, uh, the creature um, workshops and studios to, to look at a career in animatronics. And they told me to come back either with a PhD in robotics or a Master of Fine Arts. And so I came back to Australia and I investigated both of those. And in those days, Australia's art schools were not really as open-minded as they are now. Um, they weren't really interested in enrolling someone who, with an engineering background. Um, so I left the mining industry not to go to art school, but to do a PhD in, uh, in mechatronics engineering at the University of Queensland. And the, at the time, the accepted way of doing a PhD in robotics was to join a, a electrical engineering or a computer science department. I did it really differently um, by joining the mechanical engineering department. And that was mainly because they had a better focus on design than the, uh, than the other two. Um, something that I find really interesting is that if I'd had that same choice to make now, several of the art schools I spoke to back in the mid-1990s are now actively seeking students and collaborators in robotics for the arts. Um, I hope it's people like me that had a little bit of influence on, on their change in, uh, in, in the way they've approached things. But I suspect I'd have had a really um, different career if I'd followed that path. Um, after completing the PhD, I kind of realised that the film industry had moved on. Animatronics had, had given way to computer graphics and animation, and I'd, I was a robotics engineer by then. Um, essentially, I realised these were no longer the droids I was looking for. Um, so I looked for a, a way of, of using the, the robotics and mechatronic skills to, to move things around, and that's kind of how I started on the path I've, I've taken. It's, it's a long way from... Uh, from animatronics but I can I can kind of see the I can still see the connection my, yeah. my creatures are not so lifelike they're they're uh, a little bit more technical but but there is a there's a there's definitely a connection there well it's the design element so as I mentioned like wherever you go you've added extra value so when whilst you were doing your PhD as though this wasn't enough you led Australia's first ever team to the ABU Robocon Robotics Championship in Japan tell us about this this was a this was a really awesome adventure and, and journey as well. As as part of my PhD research, I had developed several small robots, 
Um, with some of the other students, um, we reworked one of these into a sumo robot that we appropriately named Insomnia because it kept us awake. Um, <laughs> and we won the one of the Australian uh, sumo robot championships back in 1997 with that machine. Somehow somebody from ABC TV had apparently noticed this that we'd won this competition. And when the Asian Broadcasting Union came to them asking if there was anyone in Australia who'd be good for their Robocon uh, championships. Robocon was originally a Japanese robot competition that um, the Asian Broadcasting Union was trying to expand to all of Asia Pacific. Um, so they came to the ABC and, and asked if there's anyone in Australia. So the ABC asked me and my PhD supervisor if we could put together a team. Um, so in a period of just under three weeks, uh, we put together a team of, of four mechanical and mechatronics engineering students Technically, it was me as a mechatronics engineering student <laughs> and three mechanical, but um, and we put together two robots for the competition, and they were so unusual. If you can imagine, this was essentially a Japanese TV game show with robots. Um, one of the robots had to search for balloons, but only burst the red ones, um, and the other one had to stack coloured boxes onto platforms and try and get the highest um, the highest uh, box on the tower but you were only allowed that robot to put boxes onto the platforms that matched with the red balloons that the other robot had burst. So in the late 1990s, that was kind of scary to do, but somehow in three weeks, and this was played on a, on a field the size of a basketball court. So it was, um, it was quite an incredible challenge. Somehow in the three weeks, we managed to build and test these, get some sponsorship to, to fly uh, the robots and us over to, uh, over to Osaka. Um, we were met by a Japanese uh, TV camera crew at the airport. Uh, they followed us around until the competition. It was just such a such an unusual experience. Um, yeah, we even got recognised after the competition on the streets of Osaka and Kyoto because it, it apparently was a really big TV event. Our robots in that competition worked really well and we did okay in the competition, but we didn't get through to the finals. Um, it was only after talking to some of the other teams that we realised that they'd all had 12 months to prepare and we'd had three weeks. Um, so we felt really quite impressed that in three weeks, we'd actually been able to put together things that were competitive with people who'd, uh, who'd spent 12 months on it. Um, as soon as we realised that this competition happened every year and that everybody else had had 12 months, we immediately asked for an invite back to the, to the following competition. And so I decided that, it was time to get other people involved. So I became the coach and the mentor for the, for the, uh, for the future teams. And the, the following year, um, our team won the, the best design and best new technology. Um, we didn't win the, the overall competition, but it was cool to get those two awards, particularly up against teams from, from Japan, Korea, China, and, uh, and other places. Um, what was really awesome, though, was seeing that some of the people who were on those teams um, go on to, to become really great robotics and, and more general engineering educators and others go on to really successful robotics careers around the world. Um, it's, it was kind of, I think, chance that we got invited in the, in the first place, but we, as, a, as a group of people, we just made the best of, right, let's, let's show the world what Australian robotics uh, is all about. And we weren't at the time, one of the, I guess, one of the recognized groups in, in robotics. We, we were at the University of Queensland, which had a really great robotics group, but we weren't part of their uh, their main uh, research group. So it was it was kind of cool to to be able to do that and make a make a bit of a difference. Well, look, I think times have changed, and certainly um, Australians are now um, really recognised for their smarts and in, in this space and robotics. Um, you know, I'm thinking like the 1990s. Is the competition still going? The competition is still going. Unfortunately, Australia hasn't been in it for many, many years, um, but it still happens uh, around around Asia. Um, once every year, they they do various versions of that competition, and it and it's broadcast live on on Japanese TV, on Korean TV, in Vietnam, in Thailand, in, in other places. So it's um, yeah, it's something that I I thought was a was a really great way of getting uh, getting people interested in robots so many of those countries that is it's a, it's a real highlight they people wait for that show yeah listen i mean i think it goes it correlates with adoption rate in those countries with robotics because japan korea um vietnam all these countries have got a high adoption rate of robotics and australia 
um, as we sadly know, um, our adoption rate isn't that that high. So is this an invite-only um, competition or can Australia put teams in? It, it was an invite-only competition back in its early days, but I believe that that Australia should still be able to put a team in. It, it would need to go through ABC TV and, and SBS TV are the, the two local members of the Asian Broadcasting Union. So it would need to go through one of those to 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 put the uh, to put a bid in to to get in. But I I think there's there's definitely an opportunity for maybe even an Australian competition that leads to a winner that goes to the to the full Asia Pacific one. I think that yeah. would be that'd be really awesome to see. And had you been to Japan before this competition? No, I I had never been to Japan. So it was it was really quite awesome to to be able to go to Japan. We I went there a couple of times because of this competition to to different uh, different parts, and and it was really awesome to to go there and just see how different it was to Australia, but also how how cool it was that everybody was so excited by different technology. Yeah, it's a it's on my bucket list. As soon as the world opens up, I don't know when that's going to be, but Japan, here I come. I'm going there, especially in the cherry blossom. I believe the World Cup rugby was played there. Was it last year? I don't know. I think it was last yeah. year. Yeah, and I, I thought I would go, but oh, look, alas, all best uh, best laid plans or plans, we just have to wait. So mechatronics is a more common degree now um, at universities than when you did it. And I think, um, you know, just touching again on our robotics uptake in Australia, part of Part of, I think, the issue with this is that in any census form you fill in, there's no mechatronics subdivision to actually allocate. It's engineering as a whole. Um, do, do you see this as a problem? Is it something that we should get fixed and addressed? Oh, absolutely. It's a problem. I, I think that there needs to be a little more detail in that. It's not just on the census. There's there's a lot of the, um, the government... Um, sort of breakdowns of, of things that people do for, for study and work where there is just not enough detail that goes to things like mechatronics and robotics. Um, I, I spent many years in senior volunteers roles with Engineers Australia trying to get this rectified. Um, what was interesting is when I started doing that, even Engineers Australia didn't recognise mechatronics or robotics as a, as a field of engineering. I was told I could be a mechanical engineer, an electronics engineer, or a software engineer. I couldn't be a combination of any of more than one of those. Um, and yet, as a robotics and mechatronics engineer, I, I kind of fit across all of those. So, um, I spent a bit of time in Engineers Australia uh, with others trying to get that that fixed. And we, we now have Engineers Australia recognising that mechatronics is a is a field of study and a, and a field of engineering, but also that other interdisciplinary engineering is going to become more prevalent. They've then been a little bit more vocal with the uh, with that with the government, but it's it's not it's not something that's that's really got a lot of traction so far. I, I think one of the things that's important that um, Australia understands is that mechatronics is probably the fastest growing engineering course at most universities that teach it, yeah. um, which kind of makes sense because the modern world's become more and more interdisciplinary as we move towards things like smart buildings and smart products and smart machines. Um, and things like the National Robotics Roadmap are really good for for the sort of awareness of of these sort of things. Um, it's it's one of those things that I I think we really need to get um, a stronger recognition of of exactly what's what this uh, what this is. And as I said, National Robot National Robotics Roadmap is, has been a really good start at that. And it's started to to bring focus to it. But I think as, a, as an industry, we, we really need to all just have to keep at it. Um, we need to be persistent. Every group and association that represents roboticists, mechatronics engineers, anyone, anyone else who works in that sort of robotics and automation space, um, we just need to, to keep being really loud about it. And Yeah, I don't, actually I don't actually understand what the problem is. Just just put mechatronics in the subline with robotics. Like, it's no big deal. Like, like just... To me, it's no big deal, but uh, clearly there must be a big deal if it's taken them this long to do it. I, I think one of the one of the difficulties is that a lot of the um, the people in government think of engineers as people who build uh, concrete bridges and roads. They don't they don't think in the more sort of broad terms that that most of Europe or Asia would think of engineers 
generally those people think of engineers as people like me that, that build things that move. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a, there needs to be a bit more of an understanding within, within governments at, of all levels that, that this really is something that's important and that this is the future of the way that, that uh, industry is going to go. Um, that there's more and more things that could be described as robotic or mechatronic in, in the way that just normal everyday people do that go about their lives. So having the ability to, to have that on a census form, to have that on um, at a higher level within some of the, the research um, sort of area breakdowns that, that universities get their funding from um, all of those things we, we really need as a, as an industry to, to make governments and and others sit up and notice that this is a that this is really important for the future of this country. Well, definitely because it, it touches on everything and it touches on the contribution that this industry is making to the economy of the country. And if you're so flippant about it and you don't even know how many roboticists and companies in Australia are actually doing this, then we we do have a problem. We do. We've got a. I think we've got a, a serious problem as a as a country because it's also something that. Unless you can measure it, you don't know how to improve it. Exactly. And you don't go, actually, you know what, the, this group of people that we've just been ignoring are contributing to our economy. And if we actually gave them the help they needed and a bit more funding, just think what they can do. Yeah. It's amazing what what uh, what roboticists and, and mechatronics engineers around Australia are doing now. But I I would be really amazed at the, the really cool stuff that, that we as an industry could do with just a little bit more uh, focus. Yeah, just just a bit more funding in the right direction. So you were, you like, as I said, your career is, is, is spanned and you've done amazing things. I'm going to, just because of just our time, I'm just going to touch on your very successful automation of the Woolworths Distribution Centre. Um, and this is actually, um, it was just at my office that I had Mulgrave and I actually met a guy there at a conference that I attended and I can't remember his name now, but he was going on about how great it was and that I have to come and visit and then COVID struck and we went nowhere. So tell us about your challenges about this project. Well, I'm, I'm going to take a couple of steps back to, to give you and your listeners a bit of an idea of how I, how I got into that. As a, Do that. A, so that there's some understanding of, of what those challenges were. So directly after I finished my PhD research, um, I ended up leading the research and development of robotics and computer vision for repairing timber pallets of all the crazy things to, to get involved in. Um, and we did, we broke a lot of the accepted ways of, of applying computer vision and ro- robotics into a factory in the early 2000s because no two pallets we ever dealt with were, were the same. And yet in the early 2000s, robots were supposedly all about just repetition. Um, while the technology that I developed there was itself was interesting, that it was the end use of those pallets that got me interested in how do you, how do you move things at high speed through manufacturing and supply chains? Um, and so I'd, I'd gone on to, to do some work with one of the, the big automation integrators and we managed to, to install a bunch of robots that, that did better than what their theoretical maximum of those robots was supposed to be. Um, and that kind of got me into onto Woolworths radar. So I, I, uh, I went to Woolworths to, to help them develop this automated distribution center. And this was on such a bigger scale than, than any of the, the things that I had worked with. Sure, there were pallets and there were boxes moving around, but the speed and the scale was enormous. Um, this was really about automating the flow of all of their ambient temperature groceries to all of their stores across Victoria. And at the time that we were developing it, it was the biggest automated grocery distribution center of its type anywhere it was it was just and it's still one of the biggest in the world but it's it was really groundbreaking at, at the at the time that uh, that we started on it and our goal with this was to to really figure out a way of robotically stacking grocery items onto pallets with two really um competing targets that that sort of pulled the development in in almost opposite directions but we had to find the right balance and one of those was to stack more items more densely onto the pallets than people could possibly do so that we could improve the efficiency of the transport so we could use less trucks. The other was to make sure that when those pallets um, got to the stores, they were, they were much more easy for the store employees to then get them onto the shelves so that people could buy the products. 
So we came up with something that we called load forming logic, which was about how to develop, how to an algorithm to actually have the robot stack those boxes on the, on the pallets. And what was especially challenging about this was that each pallet of products had to be tailored specifically to the specific part of the specific store it was going to go to. Um, nobody had ever done this anywhere in the world before. You, basically, they just stack stuff into the back of trucks and let the store deal with it. But we basically figured out that we could build things that this goes to the front of aisle four and that goes to the back of aisle 10. Um, and anyone who's ever been to an Australian supermarket knows that every single store is completely different. So this was, this was a real challenge for 262 stores to, to be able to come up with how do we make it match the store as the store changes over time? How do we, how do we make the algorithm work? Um, and, and that was, that was, it was a lot of fun to, to, to be able to do that thinking of, well, what's the robot capable of doing as well? And so the back end of the facility was, was really more traditional automation, lots of conveyors, storage and retrieval systems, sortation systems, sequencing systems. But the, the real game changer for Woolworths in this one was the line of robots with their load forming logic, um, creating pretty much perfectly stacked pallets that, that went out to, to stores and, and really made those store operations teams' lives so much easier. Um, I, don't know, I, I like to think that my experience back in that first Robocon of stacking, uh, having robots stacking crazy boxes to crazy heights uh, help me uh, help me in that process but yeah it's amazing how much fun you can have with groceries and robots I really didn't think that that, that would be a, a compatible combination um, yeah um, <laughs> and, and it's it's cool to see Woolworths um, rolling out very similar they're onto their next generation of those now um, and their competitors Coles are, are also doing they're doing a very different way of doing a, a similar outcome, but it's it's really cool to see um, Australia's two biggest employers going and putting in robots to to help their people. Yeah, listen, and I I'm just touching on the the how the stores look. I've I've always wondered why because my local um, Woolies has just been configured to completely look like all the other Woolies, and I that's why because I think when their stuff comes in, it's all these shops are beginning to look the same. They are looking does, a little bit better. Yeah, it does make it a lot easier. The more similar they are, the, the easier it is for that distribution center and the, and the less that the sequencing system ahead of the robots really needs to, to work hard. Um, but yeah, depending on the, on the scale and the size of the stores, even making them identical in, in layout, just, just because people buy different things would make the the orders that those stores place on the distribution set are different. So it's, it's always going to be an interesting sort of 3D Tetris challenge to get the best possible way for those people to, to be able to stack the shelves. Yeah. So um, this, this notion that uh, you're going to have a robot, so you're going to lose people. Um, this, this whole warehouse would have just taken that through and just turned it upside down because it's absolute nonsense. Because automation, you're actually employing more people because someone has to maintain all of this. This, this is right. The, the, they're probably different people to, to what a traditional one of these distribution centres would have, would have employed, but it still it employs an enormous number of people for, um, for, for maintenance and, and keeping everything running, but, but keeping those algorithms tuned correctly. Um, there are people who need to inspect every, every time a new product comes into that facility. You need actual real people to to have a look at it and to input the parameters for the for those algorithms to look at to be able to stack things it's it's something that um really yeah a lot of people are frightened of robotics and automation taking everyone's jobs and and i look at it and say well actually it's creating new and different jobs and that that really over time i, I think more people end up employed um yeah, and also, you know, I, I don't think it's an overnight thing. Um, you, you've got time to upskill your staff and get them into different areas of the business if that's what they choose to do. That's right. And, and, and for facilities of that kind of scale, they don't just happen, as you say, they don't happen overnight. There is, there's a lot of time in, in preparation and design, and then it takes a, quite a long time to get them uh, to get a facility of that size um, installed. So there is, there is time to train up the the people or for people to go and get themselves um, trained to, to go and uh, go into, into, I guess, the more interesting side of things instead of yeah. um, 
So did you move to Melbourne when you did this project? No, for, for, for some reason, being able to do this for voice uh, head office in Sydney was, um, was, was the way it was done. I, I did spend a lot of time in, uh, in, in Southeast uh, Melbourne because of this. Um, I got to, the people at Qantas got to recognise that if it was Tuesday, <laughs> then, uh, then I must be on the way to Melbourne. Um, here, here comes Dr. Lucas. <laughs> <yep>. um, <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was, it was interesting. We, we pioneered some of the uh, some of the ways of, of working that became useful in pandemic times. We were we were commissioning equipment with the uh, by video conference and and other things occasionally because it was just too hard to get the right people there at the right time. So, um, and that was that was back in 2016-17. So, um, yeah, being able to do that from Sydney, but was was kind of useful, but. But yeah, did spend a lot of time in in southeast Melbourne, actually on site making making this system work. Yeah, look, it's not a bad part of Melbourne. It's sort of okay. So now I I would assume this is going to be um, like the cherry on the cake. But I you're still young yet, so I'm not going to say this for the. But as far as your career in 2018, you were headhunted to join Tesla's material flow engineering team as a senior staff project engineer. Now. Like there's a lot to unpack here. Tell us how this all happened. How did they approach you first of all? So was this an absolute cold call that you got from them? This this was an absolute cold call. I was I was standing in the in the distribution center in Melbourne trying to figure out a problem with one of the robots, and my phone dinged, and there was a there was a message on there from LinkedIn from somebody at Tesla. Now, I honestly thought it was a hoax to start with, but then thought, well, what if it's not? Um, Maybe I should respond. <clears throat> Checked out that this person really was who they said they were. Um, managed to, to speak to them on the phone, and, and then they essentially invited me to come and join the uh, to join their team over in uh, in California to to solve some of their um, their production ramp and material flow problems. Um, this was uh, this was at the time that they were just about to release the Model Three. Um, the the factory in Fremont was was growing really fast. It was such an amazing adventure. Um, Tesla moves at a speed that's so different to anything I had ever encountered previously. Um, best way to think about it: imagine a place where they've collected some of the world's best and brightest uh, engineers and and others, and said, "Okay, go make the impossible happen and and do it quickly." Um, there really wasn't a lot of time to stop and reflect. My brain really felt like it was on for twenty four seven for for three years. Um, they moved so fast that the project that they originally hired me to help design was half installed by the time I got there, um, uh, just going through the visa process. Yeah, I was about to say, so from the time that they they contacted you, how long before you actually landed and where did you go to in America? So it was about, it was about four months all up between when they first spoke to me and when I, when I arrived. And, and most of that was the, was the visa process. Um, I arrived at their their main facility in Fremont in California, which is it's on the eastern side of San Francisco Bay, about halfway between uh, San Jose and, and um, Oakland and San Francisco. Um, yeah, really, really sort of interesting place, a, a very old factory that had previously belonged to Toyota and General Motors um, that Tesla had basically taken on and started building things in. Um, was it was such an interesting place to to be and to um, because of the way things moved so fast there um, things just evolved we, we would install stuff um, there would be stuff that we had installed and was was working that we would then tear out not so many weeks later to put in the next best thing in there some of the, some of the things that we put in lasted the entire time I was there some things uh, some things evolved so that they were not anywhere close to, to things that I had um, first put in. It was, it was really quite awesome. That first system I, I went in, um, I tweaked the design of it to get about 400% of the original capacity out of it, uh, or the original capacity that it was running at when I got there. So, um, yeah, it was kind of interesting to, to do that as they, as they ramped up. Um, got to do all sorts of really weird and wonderful and crazy things. Some of them, some of them I can't talk about, but uh, um, I... They got me to optimize their supply chain. It's not something that was my core skill set, but 
they decided throwing robotics engineers at supply chain problems was a good idea because we could uh, we could look at them differently. Um, I installed a 900 meter loop of car body conveyor that weighed about 500 tons from the uh, roof trusses of the building because we'd run out of floor space. Um, and we did that without in interrupting the, the operations below. We we uh, were able to reprogram some of the robots to to uh, miss the miss the new uh, platform that was above them. Um, the director of production described it really as open heart surgery on an awake patient, which was that was was kind of kind of <laughs> nice to, to have that kind of recognition. Um, and we did lots of storage and retrieval systems for for different things. And these were essentially linear robots. Um, you could tell them to go and get specific things and put them away in particular places. And, and a lot of that was for the, for the um, parts, but also we started doing them for, for battery systems. I guess I was really lucky. I got to work on projects across all the, the major Tesla factories um, in, in Fremont, in, in Reno, Nevada. Um, did some work for the, for the factory in Shanghai and then the ones in, uh, in Berlin and, and Austin in Texas as well. Um, and I guess any of those projects would have been the highlights in in my career prior to that. But being involved with so many of them in just one three-year adventure was just absolutely incredible. So have you got a family? Did your family relocate with you? It was just, just my wife and I. So yeah. we, we, re okay. we re relocated there for, for the three years to do... Uh, um, I think that simplifies not having kids to put in schools and things. And if your wife's okay, just to pack her bags and she'd probably go, yes, off we are on to the next adventure. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's interesting though. One of the, one of the things we discovered was that um, some of the other people um, from around the world who had moved there with kids got to know a lot more of the local people than we did. Yeah. Um, so I guess there's, there's pluses and minuses in, in that. So. And um, talking about the mixture of people, like I'm, I'm, Michael, Professor Michael Milford and I and, and many others I've had on the podcast talk about this brain drain of our brightest Australians leaving. And to our listeners, um, Michael has come back now. So he's he's just landed back in Sydney. But um, I actually think it's it's to the advantage of Australians that you go and you go, listen, this has been a great experience, but I actually want to go and live in, and finish or do my stuff in Australia now. Yeah, and... Look, I was I was amazed by how many Australian accents I heard around the around the Tesla offices and factories, but um, and the same around the rest of Silicon Valley. But yeah, I think it's it's great to go and be and have those experiences. There are very few places on earth where you get the kind of experience you do being thrown twenty four seven into a Tesla factory. But being able to bring that home to Australia to say, hey, Australian manufacturing and and other Australian industries, there's some Aussies who've learned some really cool stuff, not just at Tesla, but at other places around the world that getting those people to come back and we could, we could really, we're, Australians are driving a lot of the really cool stuff that's happening overseas. Mm. If we could bring people back, even, even if we rotated people back through Australia to, to let their experience sort of just share that and, and help uh, make Australian industry better. I, I think we could have, a really, really supercharged uh, um, Australian industry. Michael, I'm going to leave it to people such as yourself and people with far higher pay grades in mind to take this on as this is something that the industry needs to shake up and it's at government level. Like you, you guys and ladies need to get in there and, um, you know, like our automation, I think what COVID's really highlighted for us is that we, we're not autonomous. Like we, we so reliant on other countries and this is not a good place to be. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's one of those things that, yeah, we, we have so many Australians scattered around the world who do cool things that, that need to, to come back and, and do them here. But at the same time, Australia can't do things by itself. It needs to be part of that, that global network of, of making things happen. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Now, I have to ask you, did you meet Elon Musk? I mean, that's just, the, I should have asked that first. <laughs> I did get to meet Elon a few times. Um, the first was actually, I, I had been at the company less than a week and there was an email directly from Elon that called in all the, the engineers over a certain uh, level of seniority to come in early one Saturday morning and it was literally my first Saturday morning uh, there. Um, and he asked us to see if we could invent a quick way of building a car assembly line in the tent. Um, I think this made world news when, when it happened. But um, 
essentially we needed more production capacity fast because we, we were selling more cars than we could make. So Elon challenged us to develop the most efficient line we could possibly do without relying on automation yeah. and to get it done fast. Um, because the other line was it was very automated. In my, in my opinion, probably over-automated originally. Um, so this one was, was to be get it there, get it fast. Um, and it was really fun to see a bunch of people who dedicated their entire careers to, to manufacturing automation and, and robotics, going back to first principles to, to make the simplest possible way of making things happen. And three weeks later, there were cars rolling off that line. We got to, got to have a quick chat with Elon again at that, at that point. And we all learned a lot from that that really informed what we did sort of at every future line that, that we put in. I think it was a, it was a really great uh, challenge that, that, he put, that he put to us. Um, there were a few other interactions with him over the time, but my last major interaction with, with Elon was, was a, little, um, a little different. He'd seen the design for something we were, we were working on with, a, with the new battery manufacturing process. And as, as he tends to do, he, he looks at things from a completely different angle to a lot of people. And so he challenged us to combine two very different processes into one part of the line. Um, essentially, those two processes both took time. Um, and he said, well, why can't you do them at the same time? Um, and this took an enormous amount of effort for us to actually do what he said. Well, it's simple, just, just do it. But it took a, an enormous amount of effort from probably 150 people to, to come up with a safe way of doing what he'd asked us to do. But we made it achievable and, and it's in the process of being uh, installed in, in Austin and, and Berlin now. And it's going to make those, those places so much more efficient than, uh, than Fremont. Um, so it was it was a it was interesting to to Elon sort of bounced in and out of of everybody's uh, existences in 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 Tesla. So that was a it was such a an interesting an interesting way of uh, of having uh, having an interaction with the CEO that was so different to any Listen, other company I've worked at. I read about him and his family because you know we share South Africa's a commonality between us. That hasn't um, inspired him to you know put money into my startup here in Australia. Obviously, like that means nothing. <laughs> so, no, he like his his whole family. They're very unusual people, and obviously, yeah. you know, clearly like like genius guy. Like he, he's very very bright, and I imagine just being in his, in his orbit, you just go, oh my goodness. Like, well, I certainly would. I just because he's just his sheer energy and drive and vision and um you know like as you say well this is not a problem just get on with it yeah and, and it certainly challenges you to think differently and to think faster and more more creatively about hey how would how would you do this this is the accepted way of doing it but what's a what's another way of doing it it's also interesting that that he would challenge people on the first principles of of things so why can't you make that go faster? And and it wasn't an acceptable answer that well that's as fast as the conveyor supplier can make us make a conveyor go. It was well the physics say that it should be able to go three times as fast as that as that. So why isn't it? It was it was kind of interesting to to challenge a group of of other people who would have been they were most of the most of the people that uh, that work at Tesla would have been the smartest person in the room at most places. But to to make them to have somebody as the CEO who could go and challenge them to think differently and to to really get outside of their comfort zone with what they were designing, I think was is one of the reasons that makes that company so successful. Yeah. Listen, he's, uh, I, I think we not even scratching the surface with his capabilities and what he's going to end up doing and, and the next 10, 15 years ahead with, with Elon. What do you think um, about the states of autonomous vehicles and in, in Australia? Like um, you've been away a little bit now, but um, have you kept track of what's going on here in Australia? I, I have kept track of it. I, I think one of the, the problems with autonomous vehicles is that everybody expects them to be fully autonomous right now. And so that's what the, the regulations are, uh, are sort of, the regulations haven't caught up with the technology. But they've also a lot of the regulation has come from a point of fear rather than a point of understanding. I, I think that there is there's absolutely a, a, a uh, an argument for having autonomous vehicles in Australia. I, I we have a we have a bunch of different challenges to most of the rest of the world. We have 
with our really urbanized cities, we've got the same traffic problems that everybody else does, but with the long distances between them, um, we have a lot of um, car accidents due to people getting bored driving. I, I can't think of a better thing to have autonomous vehicles take people between uh, Sydney and Brisbane or Sydney and Melbourne or, or Melbourne and Adelaide or wherever so that it's, it's just easier uh, and safer. Um, unfortunately, I think um, part of the political issue is that autonomous vehicles are tied up with electrical, with electric vehicles and electric vehicles have not been terribly popular in Australian politics at, at any level. Um, and I think that that also sort of colours the, the conversation about autonomous vehicles. But I'm, I'm looking forward to a day when people have got a choice of autonomous vehicles that they can, that they can get into. And, and I think it will free up Australians to be uh, so much more productive. Well, a friend of mine's got uh, a Tesla. I, I, the first time I ever got in the car, absolutely amazed at how fast this vehicle can move. Um, it's beautiful. It's beautifully designed. It's lovely. I mean, you know, would I buy one? Maybe not because, you know, like I, I'm not in that uh, that sort of uh, category of spending on cars. But um, he said to me, you know, they avid skiers and the problem would be taking the car to, he lives in Melbourne, to Falls Gap and then the the distance. So, Four fifty five hundred max kilometers on his charge, but when he gets there, how's he going to charge it? Because this is, of course, the problem in Australia. You can't charge these electric vehicles. I, I think, I think that's a bit more uh, negative propaganda from from government people than it than it really is. Um, it would be very rare for a for a petrol driven car to go more than four hundred and fifty kilometers. Either. Oh yeah. Um, so, so, the, so the range anxiety thing has been built up as a as an issue. The other interesting thing is is that there are an awful lot more electric chargers around Australia than uh, than even I had realised. I I was looking at a map of them from uh, um, that that Tesla had, um, and that covered their chargers and the third party chargers as well. There's there's a there's a great um, one of the the world's best electric vehicle charging companies is based in Brisbane and they've put stuff all over the place. Um, I, I think there is just a lack of, um, of sort of people understanding that, that these things are actually out there, that in the, in most cases, um, even on the long distances people travel in, in Australia, I would think that there, there shouldn't be a problem with, uh, with electric vehicles. There's been, um, there's been electric vehicles drive all the way around Australia, for example. Um, yeah, I, th- I think it, I think where Australia is going to come unstuck is that, um, you know, countries in Europe by they sort of saying by 2025, 26, it's all going to be electric vehicles. Like, and we importing yep. our cars to Australia. This this is going to be have a slight disconnect with us because I don't know what vehicles we're going to be importing if they're all electric cars. Yeah, and and part of the part of the issue is as well that. Almost every electric car coming into Australia is hit with the luxury car tax. Yeah, um, they get way out of the the range of the average Australian buying them. But you're right. Now that we don't have a local car industry um, importing cars, no matter where they come from, whether they come from from Europe, from Korea, from Japan, from China, um, they're going to be electric in yeah in five years' time. Australia's just going to have to. Well, they, yeah, they're going to have to just make a quick swing on their policy of no electric vehicles and they're going to have to go, well, and they're going to have to drop the tax on it because it's not as though in Australia we can go, well, I'm just going to buy whatever car I want to. Yeah, that's right. And I, I think there is a, I think that there's a really big opportunity for, for those electric and then follow up autonomous vehicles to, to really um, make a, a really big change in, in Australia. There's something that's intrigued me about this autonomous vehicle now again, and, and maybe you can tell me. Who assumes responsibility? So um, Teslas have been in a very minuscule amount of accidents where their cars been involved. Like it's, if you look at car accidents where drivers are involved and where autonomous vehicles and where something's engaged, it's maybe four or five that I've read of. But as I see it, I think part of this is the way who's assuming the neg- the the negligence of the insurance point of view. Like, where, how do you figure this out? I, I think that is probably the biggest challenge remaining for 
um, for smart cars of any kind, whether that's just a regular driver assist system that, that most of the car companies have or the, the fully autonomous um, things that, that companies like Tesla and Rivian and, and others are, are sort of heading towards. Um, yeah, I, I think that is that is probably a much bigger challenge than, than the technical challenge. Everybody puts the, um, puts the weight on the technical challenge of, well, let's get this right. But there's, the, there's a really big ethical challenge in terms of, of who is liable. Um, it's it's the, old, the old question of um, if the car has to make a choice as to who it runs down, mm. it's got no choice. Who does it pick and, and who's, who's had input to that? I think there is a, that's the, there's probably a, a very big thing for, for robotics ethicists to, uh, to come in and, and have a lot to say in that place. Because if we, if we don't get that right, then a lot of those things are just going to get regulated out of existence because it won't, it won't be practical from a, from a legal or an insurance point of view to, to have them because too many people are going to um, sue people. Yeah, so in uh, mostly now, um, Tesla vehicles aren't fully autonomous, as I understand it. They have the capability, but they're not. So in in accidents or reported cases in in America that I've read about, um, that they've said, oh, um, the the driver wasn't sitting in the driver's seat. Can you actually engage the vehicle to be fully autonomous, or is that nonsense? It's it's pretty much nonsense at this at this point. It's it will get turned on at some point. The, the features are there. The, the AI in the background is, is there learning about, about what's doing, what things are doing. It can be semi-autonomous at the moment. Um, there, there's a lot coming. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the, a lot of what the, the vehicles are doing at the moment is a, is a very advanced driver assist system, um, which, which is why it requires somebody in the driver's seat, um, which is, kind of kind of sensible to me and those those people who've done the silly things of sitting sitting in the back seat or or in the passenger seat and and somehow tricking the vehicle um i I think that's just a it's it's crazy negligence on their part Mm. um but also it's it's really not understanding the the constraints and the limitations of of the, the current technology is tesla taking um policymakers in the space of insurance on the journey or is this just something that how's this evolving it, it it's not something i was i was sort of exposed to but i i do understand that they've got people uh, really sort of talking through the the policy issues with with the the, the people who, who make the rules wherever that is so um yeah it's 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 something that them the other the other big car companies who are heading in that direction are, are all doing the same thing i yeah. think as a as an industry they as much as they compete with each other there's it's all, it's in their best interests to, oh, to yeah. all collaborate with each other to to have the the various uh, places around the world actually sort of think through the future of what their laws and regulations in that space are going to be oh definitely collaboration definitely is the way to go forward then and, and keep your costs down as well what would you is there, can you pinpoint like a highlight of your time there of being in uh, America? Really there were there were so many highlights in that in that three years. I was really lucky to be part of the material flow engineering team at, at Tesla. We had we had several homes within the company. We kept moving around. We were in manufacturing, production, supply chain, we were finally in vehicle engineering. Um, and where most of the, the teams at Tesla were experts in like in a very specific manufacturing process, we were sort of more of a horizontal team. We did everything from overall factory layout to specific automation processes. We were kind of the glue that connected other islands of automation together. Um, it was kind of a way of getting parts and sub-assemblies and sometimes whole vehicles from process to process. Um, what that meant was that I really got to be part of just about everything that was happening across the various factories. And, and so to pick, to pick just one highlight is is kind of hard because there was just every second of every day, there was something really cool going on that I was, that I was involved in. Um, I guess one of the, one of the things that kind of struck me while I was there was, was just how fast the robotics industry was moving. Um, and that's because we, we had more robots than I'd ever seen in, in one place. Um, I, I'd spent time in, 
in in the Holden and Toyota and Ford factories in Australia sort of 20 years ago. And they had a lot of robots, but nothing compared to what was at, what was at Tesla. Um, what, what was interesting though, with that building being so old, then it was empty when Tesla got there, except for one really old conveyor that was like a, a chairlift for car bodies. And one of the very first robots that Tesla ever put in was feeding that, that conveyor. And one of the projects I had to work on, um, we were gonna to have to modify what that robot did. And that robot was put in in 2011, but it was near impossible three generations of industrial robot on to find anybody in North America who had recent experience programming one of those. Um, so we, we ended up not changing what it did and changing the, the other equipment around it because of that. But it was so incredible to see that something that was installed in 2011 was already out of date. And there it was sitting next to a conveyor that was, that was 40 years old, uh, that was still, it, that was easy for control systems to be upgraded on that. And it, it made me kind of think there is an opportunity for a better path for um, industrial robots to be upgraded so they don't get to that point. Um, really, the, mechanically, they haven't changed much in 40 years, but every time you buy a new one, the, the, the control box for them is completely different. And that was something that um, was a little bit of a struggle at Tesla because it was moving so fast that uh, trying to standardize things, standardize those robot controllers was, was kind of difficult. We, we ended up with mechanically the same machine and a couple of different types of controllers over, over that time. So. Listen, they, they must have had an Apple designer there because every time you buy an app, a Mac, everything's different. Now, <laughs> this is a design, it's not a design flaw. It's, it's specifically designed that you have to buy the next robot. <laughs> yep, and, and I'm, I'm convinced that the, the big industrial robot manufacturers, are, they, they were all the same in that, in that respect. So it was, yeah, it was, yeah, yeah kind of an interesting thing to, to observe and to, to be part of and to, to see and it's not something I think I would have seen anywhere else because in most places you put a robot like that in and it lasts until until it falls apart and then you put in a whole new one. You don't ever really reconfigure the one that's been there to do something different. Yeah. So, Michael, you're back in Australia. Was it an end of a contract or you, you decided, you know, it's time to come home? Look, all, all good adventures must come to an end. It was, um, it was time, time to come home. Um, there was there was a lot more that I could have continued working on through through the factories in Berlin and, and Austin and 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 other places, but but yeah, it was it was time to come home. Um, yeah, time to see family I haven't seen in a long time and 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 that sort of thing. So um, and and time for new adventures. So um, just touching back because you would have been you would have been there during COVID. And I remember Elon, a thing I read saying, Elon has told all Tesla workers to go back to, and regardless of COVID, how did that all play out? It was a, I tell you, it was a very interesting time to be in the United States generally, but, but in Northern California and at the Tesla factory specifically. Um, we were able to do the vast majority of what we were doing from home. Um, we we did a, a few things with installing equipment where we were we'd have one person on site the rest of us by by sort of vpn uh, looking at what was going on and vpns and, and video and so on but yeah there was there got to be a point where we just literally had to had to go in to make things happen um i really really appreciated what the, the health and safety team at, at tesla did they um they went above and beyond to make sure that that was a really safe place to to work. They they split up workspaces. Um, they they made sure that everybody walking into that place could walk out as healthy as they walk in. Um, and as scary as it was to be in the United States while COVID was going completely ballistic, um, it was it was nice to know that. Uh, um, even though we'd all been told we needed to get back to work, that there were the the whole the whole team um, really took it upon themselves um, to make sure that that everybody stayed safe. Oh, that's fabulous, and and what a uh, like what a a good testament to someone. Clearly, you know, if you listen to the clips out of the Amazon work warehouse stories, it's like it's a nightmare from just from what I've read about it. Um, What's new? What what's happening for you in Australia now? Are you are you already something? Can you talk about it? 
look, there's a there's a few things that I can't talk about that are that are on the on the boil. As I said, I'm looking forward to to seeing family when the when the borders uh, reopen. But but I'm looking forward to being able to do two two big things in the in my engineering space. One is I want to help Australian manufacturing and supply chains sustainably implement autom automation and robotics to to make their operations safer and more productive. But I also want to balance that with trying to encourage young Australians to think of themselves in careers that involve mechatronics and robotics. I've kind of believed that the, the last industry that's ever going to get automated is the people designing the automation. Although there's some clever AI tools that are probably trying to prove me wrong, but, but I figure it's a, um, if, if I can balance helping Australian industry do things better and to, to get uh, more young people to, to get into this uh, into this kind of industry, then, then I think uh, that's that's something that I I am really uh, inspired by. Michael, you've just put your hand up to be a mentor, so don't be surprised if you get like twenty emails from youngsters listening to the podcast to uh, to get your advice. What excites you, and what makes you optimistic about our robotics industry in Australia? Look, I I think Australia has one of the the robotics industries with the most potential of anywhere in the world. I, it really excites me that um, Australia's robotics researchers are doing some really awesome stuff. But I'm also impressed wherever I go around the world by how many Australians are working in high-tech robotics-driven jobs in places I'd least expect them. As I said, there's lots of Aussies at Tesla. There's lots of Aussies driving robotics initiatives around Silicon Valley and, the, and other key robotics hubs around San Francisco Bay, but also in Rabo Valley in the Netherlands and um, the Odense cluster in Denmark there's just lots of Aussie roboticists just driving the, the cool stuff that's happening around around the world um, but also I think the interest in robotics from primary school age kids onward is really encourages me I love that my primary school age nieces and nephews are building robots that are not far off but what I was building when I first started my PhD and that technology has come far enough that that Aussie kids can now build robots in their uh, in their classrooms I think also, the number of people taking mechatronics and robotics majors in their engineering degrees is growing. Um, I think, unfortunately, some universities have reported a downturn in total engineering numbers, but the numbers of mechatronics students are going up. So, to me, that's a there's a it's not good that the the overall numbers of engineers are going down, but it's a happy picture that there's a greater percentage of those following engineering careers who are learning about mechatronics and robotics. Um, and it's leading to, to more and more robotics-related startups, but also um, it's people taking those ideas of robots, mechatronics, and automation into more traditional companies and industries that may not have may not have really um, thought of robots before. The the one thing that I think we can do better, I I want to see more diversity in those classes and the of robots and the and the startups and industries that employ those people that when they graduate. Um, I think that's how we make Australian robots, robotics even more successful. Um, I think luckily robotics and mechatronics doesn't have quite the reputation of being uh, pale, male and stale as some of the other more traditional engineering disciplines do, but there's always room for, for a broader cross-section of the community to be represented in, in how we develop and deploy robots in, in Australia. Michael, I'm delighted that you've come back to Australia. Um, I can speak on the on behalf of the rest of Australians in the um, in the industry and um, engineering and robotics. I, I know you're going to go on to do great stuff here. Have you got any closing remarks for our listeners? And just well, on thanks. listeners, can I just sorry? I just want to tell you. Um, uh, I actually looked at a stat. I've got listeners from 92 countries, and I actually went. Some of the countries I can't even pronounce the names. So I'm not even going to attempt on this episode, but I just want to tell you, audience base, 92 countries, people are listening. So give us your your that, your that party. Is really awesome. <laughs> yeah. I, first of all, thank you for for the opportunity to talk a little bit about my, my robotics journey. I've had so much fun over the last 25 years making. Um, making things that other people said was impossible actually happen. And it's been great to share some of the highlights with you and your audience. And, and I want to encourage others to seek out similar adventures. And for anyone contemplating a career in robotics, don't hesitate. Just get in there and learn, get involved, start making a difference. It's such a rewarding space to work in. And, and for those thinking it's too hard, there aren't many opportunities, then go and make those opportunities for yourself. I look back at my journey growing up in the semi-rural outskirts of Brisbane I'd never even met an engineer before I enrolled in engineering school. And I was one of the first in my family to get a university degree of any kind. And 
here I am not that much later having had incredible robotics adventures all around the world. And if I can have had those adventures, then I'm pretty reassured that the young people of today can go on to do even more exciting things. And if there's any parents listening, encourage your kids to investigate robotics. The world's heading in that direction. There's no turning back now. And anyone with an understanding of robots is, and robotics is going to be way better off, even if that's not what they might end up doing ultimately as a career. And as an industry, we need all the help we can get from smart young people from across our communities, across Australia or wherever that is in the world. Michael, I couldn't agree with you more. Like that sentence of whether or not it ends up being your career, you need to know about it. You know, you need to be an informed citizen of the world. So, Absolutely. Thank you so much. I've had such fun speaking with you. I know I'm going to get you back in a couple of months' time, maybe a few months' time, to see what you on to your next project. Um, is it okay if I put an email address out there if anyone wants to contact you? Absolutely. I'll I'll uh, make sure that you have an email address that. Uh, that's good for that. Okay, fantastic. Um, to our listeners in 92 countries and hopefully um, more to come on board, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Let's Talk Robotics. And I'll speak with you again next week. Thanks, Michael. Thanks.